Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I am so uh, glad that we are able to talk a little bit about what's going on uh, between Russia and Turkey and what the potential implications are. This is something that's been very much on my mind as well as a lot of people's minds. I'm, I'm pleased to bring in Richard Kahn, managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, uh, who is an expert on Russian relations and has extensive experience kind of deciphering some of the tea leaves. So, Richard, you know, what's your take on the sort of steps that have been taken since the assassination of the uh, Russian ambassador to Turkey? Well, I, I think the reactions have uh, to date been uh, quite predictable. Uh, Russia and Turkey have uh, some time ago uh, sort of uh, moved beyond the official position that they're in, uh, you know, basically in a state of proxy war vis-a-vis uh, -vis Syria uh, being on opposite sides. That, that really changed. And this recent terrorist incident uh, underscores the alliance that they have uh, in which uh, Russia basically is allowing and supporting the efforts of Syria to deal with, uh, excuse me, of uh, uh, Turkey to deal with their uh, problems on the Syrian border with uh, Kurdish groups that are within Syria and which are supporting uh, Kurdish uh, uh, terrorist activities. Uh, within Turkey. And for the perspective of Russia, uh, Russia receives from this deal the uh, uh, support, if you will, of Turkey in um, um, basically the agenda that Russia has in supporting Assad uh, in Syria. So it's uh, it, it makes um, sort of a, uh, the 1984 uh, scenarios that Orwell envisioned uh, look quite simplistic when you when you consider uh, how the official positions really do not match with what is taking place on the ground, and this uh, this terrorist activity really underscores those themes. Well, Richard, one thing that's taking place uh, on the ground and indeed under the sea is energy, right? The Russian government uh, putting together a proposal, and it has passed, to carry Russian uh, natural gas under the Black Sea to Turkey. Can you explain a little bit about the uh, the, the the sort of strata, the energy strategy and the energy relationship between Turkey and Russia? Well, this has been one of the foundations for their relationship and the reason why, even after the shooting down by, uh, you know, by the Erdogan regime of um, Russian planes uh, a year or so ago, a uh, Russian plane a year or so ago, that Putin nonetheless wanted to find a way to uh, move forward. There's been a tremendous competition in terms of how Russian oil w would uh, head towards uh, Europe and uh, certainly, Turkey has, you know, wanted it to, you know, pass through uh, uh, you know, their borders and and receive some compensation for that. So uh, it's been um, it's been a relationship of, of practicality between Putin and Erdogan, and uh, I would expect at this stage that uh, you know they're going to continue to signal that nothing is going to come between them. How does the U.S. factor into this? I know that uh, President-elect Donald Trump is expected to have a closer relationship, or at least a, a better relationship, with Vladimir Putin, the Russian head of Russia, 
than previous administrations. Um, what will that look like and what would be gained potentially uh, from a close relationship between the two nations? Well, first, vis-a-vis the, the situations we're describing right now in Turkey and in Syria, I, I think part of the challenge that the Trump team is going to have is figuring out what they really want to do um, and how to become um, more relevant to uh, to the resolution of these situations. Uh, uh, Trump has historically been, you know, quite critical of uh, the Obama uh, administration for their handling, and so they'll get a chance now to come up with a game plan. There, By the no way, question. I should just say, perhaps yeah. part of the game plan has to do with Twitter, because uh, President-elect Trump did say today, there were terror attacks in Turkey, Switzerland, and Germany, and it is only getting worse. The civilized world must change thinking. So that was his contribution. Yes, that has been his contribution. And I, I, obviously, it's it's the old story. It's one thing to uh, be an outsider criticizing. Uh, what's always challenging when uh, you have uh, someone actually succeed in gaining power, at that point, they need to govern. And he's going to have to come up with with solutions uh, and go further than just identify problems as being terrorist-related, which, you know, in this instance, it certainly seems they are. And, uh, but to then move from there to a relationship, say, particularly with Russia, that reflects his uh, instincts to uh, mend fences and try to come up, come up with solutions, th- that's going to be, I think, far more complex than he you know, may may recognize at this stage. Russia, while perhaps being willing to show a little bit of leg, uh, you know, is is not is not instantly what going to abandon. <laughs> They're not going to instantly uh, decide, you know, to abandon you know, long held positions, and you know, because those positions, just as ours, are have been based on uh, on real concerns and on uh, strategic interests, and so. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he should not try. I, I certainly look forward to seeing uh, his efforts to um, utilize the prospect of lifting sanctions to tackle um, in a fresh way the problems that we face with Russia and Ukraine, and obviously to see if we can do some things to benefit the region you know, in Syria and uh, and you know all the refugees there. So you know th- these are. These would be noble things to accomplish, and I suspect that that's somewhere in his mind. But uh, uh, tactically to do that is going to be extremely difficult. And then coming up with an overarching strategy uh, will be uh, you know, even more complex, I think, for, for Trump and his advisors. Richard, uh, the Turkish economy uh, contracted for the first time in seven years during the third quarter. That was revealed right. last week. This Mm -hmm. sputtering economy also includes a collapse in private domestic consumption, dropping more than 3% year over year. What's the future of the Turkish economy, let's say, the next six months? Give you about 30 seconds. Well, it looks looks awfully gloomy, doesn't it, Tim? Um, You know, as we spoke of on previous occasions, uh, you know, these, these terrorist activities obviously have a dramatic impact on tourism, I can tell you we were planning to fly through Istanbul uh, uh, within the last half year, and my wife certainly commented to me that even a connection there was something that caused her, you know, some concern. 
Uh, and I don't blame her. Ultimately, the tourism industry drives many nations, and Turkey is certainly among those. Uh, so I would expect right. to see an ongoing uh, decline in tourism uh, just because of these uh, terrorist incidents. Thanks very much. Richard Kahn is managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, telling us about the relationship between Turkey and Russia. One of the uh, latest nominees of President-elect Donald Trump to his cabinet is Representative Mick Mulvaney to uh, oversee the office that's in charge of the U.S. budget. This is going to be a hot spot for debate and, frankly, for policy. I want to bring in Billy House, who covers uh, the White House for Bloomberg, to talk a little bit about what this pick means for uh, the budget of the United States going forward. Billy, uh Representative Mick Mulvaney is not known for being uh, fiscally liberal on any level, and yet a lot of uh, President-elect Trump's policies would really require a certain expansion of the budget. Do you expect there to be some kind of fight that's being uh, set up ahead? Well, that's absolutely a possibility. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, a South Carolina congressman, uh, has been one of the most uh, aggressive pugilistic advocates for cutting government spending, particularly military spending. And as we know, uh, the president-elect has said he's going to bolster the military. So there's one key area right off the bat that you got to wonder, how do these two guys mesh? Uh, Mulvaney's made a career out of going after uh, military spending. And uh, uh, so it, it remains to be seen how they're going to get together on that. Billy, what's his relationship with uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Paul Ryan? Uh it's strained. Uh, uh, Mulvaney was part of the group of outspoken fiscal conservatives known as the House Freedom Caucus, who basically forced the previous speaker out of office, uh, John Boehner. Um, the relationship has been a little better with uh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan's only been speaker for a little more than a year, but already there had been growing strains on on some of the promises that uh, this group thought uh, Ryan had made and, and did not see through in this early part of his tenure. Uh, there's some tension there, and there'll be some tension as they discuss uh, uh, financial things together As the, now as a member of the administration and the speaker. So, Billy, one thing that I'm looking at is if you have this fiscal conservative who has come out aggressively uh, in favor of cutting the budget, um, and then you have President-elect Trump who is looking for fiscal expansion, infrastructure spending, this is adding up to a lot of cuts and a lot of difficult decisions that have to be made in the upcoming months. Where do uh, what units of the government do people expect to get cut the most? Well, that's the good question. Uh, and is it cuts, really? Or is it hopes that uh, tax cuts generate, uh, you know, revenue that could help pay for these things? So uh, obviously, right. But, you know, I just Ryan, have to say the logic of tax cuts generating revenue uh, you know, a lot of people wonder about that. In other words, that the logic that tax cuts will be sufficient to uh, ignite the economy enough to then subsequently provide even greater tax revenues going forward, correct? Exactly. And it's dubious that that could occur very fast, much less occur at all. Uh, there is some talk of repatriation of uh, corporations who have located outside of the country, uh, allowing them to come back with either no penalty or less penalty, and that way bringing back 
maybe a portion of the tax money they would have had paid. That could help boost some. But you're right. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is going to go after uh, uh, agency spending and, and, and cuts. And, and, and Paul Ryan is, wants to go after entitlement spending and cuts. But at the same time, as you pointed out, uh, the president-elect has said uh, he doesn't want to go after entitlements like Medicare and, and uh, uh, Social Security. So uh, it really is who gets to who's going to control this agenda, and nobody knows right now. Well, part of that agenda has to do with immigration policy, and I was reading some past notes about a Representative uh, Congressman Mulvaney, and uh, he has been a supporter of amnesty. That puts him at odds with Senator Jeff Sessions, who is slated to be the head of the the Attorney General, head of the Justice Department, and indeed he's got a quote. I, I remember he said, "There are jobs that American citizens will not." He says, we have businesses in his district that rely on migrant, legal migrant workers, and a lot of them are in this state. Absolutely. I mean, in February, he even did a town hall. He learned Spanish to be able to do this town hall partly in Spanish for Latinos in his district. Uh, so he's open to that. And, and that, again, is another area where he clashes with uh, at least what has been you know, said during the campaign by Mr. Trump himself. Um uh, it's, a, it's another wrinkle, uh, another piece of the emerging Trump administration that seemed to not all fit together. And it's re- and it's representative because the executive orders that have been used by President Obama on immigration policy, uh, those are entered into the federal registry, right? That's actually correct. But uh, Mr. Mulvaney uh, has also been critical, though, of Obama's unilaterally making changes to the system. So uh, in, in a functional way, he's opposed some of the Obama administration efforts, even though may generally he kind of agrees with the ideas. Billy, is this uh, typical for an incoming administration to have so many different key members of the cabinet that, uh, frankly, are at odds with each other? It's it's usually uh, a president reflect uh, a cabinet reflects the philosophy of uh, the president. <laughs> Here we have multi philosophies, different viewpoints. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing when they get together, if they ever do all get together. Uh, But it's certainly confusing. And it's certainly confusing to those on Capitol Hill who will have to put uh, the the president and his administration's visions into actual legislation. And and therefore, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, who has his own, he's not a potted plant, are going to have to come to grips with what they all mean when they all talk about things. Well, we're going to look forward to more of your reporting. Many thanks. Uh, Billy House, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, home to uh, Bloomberg 99.1 and uh, 105.7 HD2. All right. Now to give us a look at some of the appointees uh, for President-elect Donald Trump's uh, future cabinet, I want to bring in Tyler Cowen. He is a Bloomberg View columnist. He's also professor of economics at George Mason University, writes for the blog Marginal Revolution, and his books include Averages Over, Powering America Beyond the Age of the Great Stagnation. Tyler Cowen, thank you for being with us. Go ahead, set out your thoughts here about the nominees, the appointees uh, for uh, President-elect Donald Trump's cabinet and what skills they might bring to their jobs that are different than the skills we may be used to in these positions. 
Overall, I think Trump is taking a lot of chances with these picks, but that's based on an understanding of Washington gridlock. If in most cases your agency heads don't get that much done anyway, arguably you should take a lot of chances. So he's picked people who have some credibility and influence with him, who are good communicators, who in some cases, such as Ben Carson, are pretty famous, and said, you know, narrow expertise isn't always the main thing. So my overall assessment is this is actually going to end up being effective, whether or not you agree with Trump's views. Okay, Tyler, you know, I read your column and I thought it was fascinating. They expect Trump's appointees to have a big impact. And the reason why I thought it was so interesting is because it raises a question of what matters more for a cabinet member? Their ability to be famous and to have a big persona and to be a Sylvester Stallone uh, with, with big name recognition and good media presence or the knowledge, experience and capability of crafting a legislations or po- legislation or policies uh, that will be effective. Well, again, this is a gamble. But if the people at the top of the agencies or appointments know that they don't know all of the details, they can assign that to subordinates. So there's a chance they think they know more than they really do. And then you're in for a lot of trouble. But again, keep in mind, in a gridlocked world, arguably an administration should be willing to take more chances. Well, so, you know, it it raises yet another question just about whether these these cabinet members will delegate? I mean, do we have any sense of whether, first of all, they will uh, be able to delegate their or sort of have the nature to delegate some of the, uh, the the tasks and also whether some of the institutional Washington crowd will stick around? That's hard to assess, but keep in mind a lot of the picks, they have more business experience and military experience than is typical. And those are areas where you do have to learn to delegate to be effective. So again, I'm not saying you have to like Trump's ideas or his picks. I'm saying don't assume this is some strategy list, you know, stabbing in the dark way to approach the problem. I think it's actually pretty well thought out. Tyler, I'm wondering if you could use an example of uh, Larry Kudlow uh, as a contender to chair the Council of Economic Advisors and how that fits into your perspective. Well, let me first just say I know Larry, so my view here may be biased, but I've seen a lot of professional economists criticize him for not being a member of the Guild in in a proper way. Uh, Larry's a very smart guy. He's a very clear talker. He has tremendous television experience. In terms of being both a communicator and someone Trump will listen to, you know, that may end up being much more important. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about that pick. Is there any pick that you're less optimistic about? Well, the one that worries me most is uh, Michael Flynn as national security advisor. The notion of him controlling the flow of information to Trump on foreign policy, uh, that to me is the worst of the picks. Is there any criteria that you would suggest has changed uh, because we now live in a tweeter-in-chief environment? Well, most of the picks are surprises, and it wasn't just drawing into the pool and picking all the normal people from the Washington establishment. Uh, So I think Trump in general is saying, look, the whole world has changed. I won. That shocked you all. You've all got to realize that's not the last thing to have changed. Here's the next step of surprises. Have you ever seen this type of cats in a bag approach to cabinet members with lots of different uh, views represented on all sides and kind of thrown together, come up with a coherent policy? Uh, Not in my lifetime, no. So this is uh, something different. Is there 
Go ahead. Go, go ahead. All right, so say, Tyler, I just wanted to press you a little bit because um, this all sounds rhetorically, uh, you know, great and it, it knits together. But if you were going out to hire someone to run one of these large government agencies and departments, wouldn't you want expertise previously running something like that? My personal picks would be more along the line of traditional expertise. But keep in mind, Trump views himself as a disruptor in a way that I personally would not endorse. I view stability as a higher priority. So given Trump's underlying preference for disruption, these are what disruption picks look like. But would I as a whole make the same choices? No. Tyler Cowen, thank you so much for joining us. Tyler Cowen, Bloomberg View columnist. He's also professor of economics at George Mason University and writes for the blog Marginal Revolution. Since the Federal Reserve raised rates, uh, interest rates on new credit cards have increased by about a half a percentage point. Uh, they were previously about 15.8%. Now they average more than 16 and a quarter percent. Here to tell us more about consumer credit is Nidhi Verma, Senior Director of Research and Consulting with TransUnion, joining us from Chicago. Nidhi, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, tell us about this consumer credit market forecast for 2017. What does it look to find? Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Um, about this time of the year, we predict what will happen in the marketplace in the next four quarters to come in 2017 to look into credit performance as well as average debt levels for U.S. borrowers. Uh, and as you've already seen the rise in interest rate that we saw last week, uh, that combination of the interest rate rise and more to be expected in 2017, along with what we've seen as more and more subprime borrowers in the consumer lending market, we're expecting those two factors are going to spur delinquency rates, um, spur delinquency rate rises in 2017 for specifically auto loans or leases as well as credit cards. Um, if you look at the percent of subprime accounts who have a credit card um, in the U.S. at the end of third quarter of 2016, that's really the highest level that we've seen since the end of 2010. When you look at auto finance for that factor, it's the highest point since the conclusion of 2013. So we believe that with these anticipated uh, further rises in prime rate, along with the combination of subprime consumer participation in the market, we are going to see rising delinquency rates for auto as well as credit cards in 2017. So who's going to suffer the losses from this? Will there be losses? I mean, is it going to be the captive auto lenders or will it be uh, uh, perhaps big investment firms? I think from an auto finance perspective, we do believe that independent lenders have the highest share of subprime accounts. So definitely those uh, lenders will be needed to be well-prepared um, you know, just to make sure their underwriting strategies are maintaining a good balance between expected losses, credit access, and who, investor returns, and what have you. Who who are the independent lenders you're talking about who are the biggest in this space? These are going to be your independent lenders who only do auto finance. Like Santander Auto? Out, essentially outside of banks, credit unions, and captives. Everybody else is just lending um, auto finance in the market. Those are Those are considered your independent lenders. How fast will the pass along be for increased interest rates? We've gotten hints that the Federal Reserve could raise interest rates as much as three times in 2017. 
Yeah, well, well, I can't speak for what to anticipate in terms of rate rises. What I can share is that our forecast includes about a 50 basis points rise uh, between Q4 2016, which we've already seen that, um, as well as 2017. Um, and then I think importantly, we do understand there's an impact from prime rate. There's also an impact from contribution of subprime borrowers gaining access in the market. I think it's really important to not only look at the trajectory, which is going to be rising, but also look at the levels itself. You look at the levels of auto loan delinquencies, you know, we, we reached the peak even at 1.6%, which is quite low considering where we saw, saw mortgage delinquencies. Mortgage delinquencies peaked at 7.2% at the beginning of 2010. We never really saw those peaks in auto. So in, in overall, I think where we look at the levels for car delinquency, uh, which is expected to be 1.4% at the end of 2017, it was as high as 3%. Those levels are still quite manageable, despite the fact there is more access available to subprime borrowers. And I think that's really a factor to take into account with very positive economic forces, such as your better employment picture, rising median household income. Um, we see increases in personal spending as a result of that. So those are some of the offsets that we do need to keep in mind, along with the anticipated rise in prime rates. Right. You know, one thing, as you speak, Nidhi, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, you talk about rates rising and how that tightens credit conditions. It makes it more challenging for people to uh, to, to refinance at low rates. And on the other hand, a lot of people are baking into the stock market, certainly, uh, this sort of very optimistic picture of the U.S. economy in the coming year. Can you square those two things? Because as you were saying, I mean, typically in a, a positive uh, economic backdrop, usually it would be easier for consumers to pay off their loans. I mean, how much of this, is the tightening going to really matter? Yeah, so overall, you know, the, the decent rates rises that we we are expecting for next year need to be really balanced by that positive economic picture that you talked about. While it may be difficult from a refinance market perspective for consumers to come and get better rates, but if you look at the unemployment rate and the fact that people are employed and they have jobs and they have median household income rising, that, those are also positive forces that are really helping a very large market of U.S. credit consumers. That is mortgage. Look at mortgage, for example. You know, we're going to hit about a 2.1% delinquency rate at the end of 2017. That is a very normal rate of delinquency that we should expect if we are going to be in the lending business. And that rate of delinquency is really supported by the fact that people have more confidence in their homes. Home values are rising, and they feel more confident paying towards their mortgages. Um, lower unemployment rates support those steady improvements over those, these several years we've seen and continued improvement in the market. So while it may impact your refinance activity, it is going to really bolster um, the purchase market. It's going to enable more first-time home buyers. in fact, that we predict will be quite dominant in the market next year because of those positive economic forces enabling um, a strong foundation for our economy. Uh, Nidhi, I understand that um, the total dollar amount of credit card debt for consumers in the United States that they're carrying is approaching a trillion dollars. The last time we were at this level was 2007. Does that tell you anything about where we are in the cycle? So um, just as a fact, we, we measure debts for every single credit active consumer in the United States, and we look at cards, both private label cards, meaning your merchant cards, as well as we look at general purpose cards that consumers can use at any location. 
Um, when we look at those debt levels, they're not quite at a trillion dollars. Just looking at consumer debt alone, um, I can tell you we're about $780 billion in credit card debt. These are balances that consumers carry on their credit card statement um, that shows up in your mailbox every month. Uh, that $780 billion isn't as alarming. Uh, we've seen those levels in the past, and really what we've seen the last few years is personal spending, which has really uh, been increasing as a result of that better employment picture we talked about, has continued to grow. And personal spending does benefit card balances because people like using their cards for the transactional convenience. I even buy my $4 latte on a credit card. And that <laughs> personal spending is benefiting the card balances. Um, so I think we do have to keep in mind that balances are a factor of yeah. spend as well as what consumers need for their credit needs. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Nidhi Verma, a TransUnion's Senior Director of Research and Consulting, off to get a latte. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.